0: But the idea that our event means something and how are we building other programming? How are we building relationships? Just trying to grow this concept of what open streets means for our region and helping push policy change through that.
1: Because it has the nationwide attention of a lot of cycling communities, that's going to send the message as to, hey, for somebody who does something like this and the investigation is dropped at the actual scene, here's the chance to make it right and hold somebody accountable.
2: I'm gay. I'm gay. I'm gay. Bike Talk, rocking the world, one spoke at a time. So what's the deal?
3: The deal is we got Tafari Bain, chief strategist of Cyclavia. We also got Lindsey Sturman, Bike Talk co-host. And we got you. You got an interview coming up later with Charlie Thomas, Bike lawyer.
2: Yeah. And he brought up some interesting technical details about how insurance
3: works. And also a horrific crime.
2: Yeah. A horrific crime that the cops just did nothing about. And Charlie's going to work on that.
3: All right. And we'll hear that after Tafari and you and I and Lindsay talk about strategy, because Tafari is the chief strategist of Cyclavia. Who better to talk to about this strategy for? For getting more Ciclavia's?
2: Welcome to the show, Tafari.
0: Thank you for having me, guys. It's always a pleasure. Yeah, I'm Chief Stratus for Ciclovia, and I strategize
2: on how to make more Ciclovia. Sure. How are we going to get to a monthly Ciclovia?
0: Well, I mean, we were going to go right before the break. We'll call it a break, to be nice. Our pandemic break. We -hmm. were going to do six that year, so we were excited to get to every other month. And we're trying to ramp up for sure, start January, looking at trying to do eight in the next 12 months after that. So we're still getting up to speed now. I think mean, we have our second event back, but our first full-size event coming up this Sunday. Part of LA. Part of LA. Back to the first one. And 10,
3: ten years after the day. fact, right?
0: 10 years after the fact, on 10-10-2010, we did our first event. and Now on 10-10-2021, 20, we are now doing our 37th event. So yeah, it's been a lot. Wow.
2: 37 ciclovias since 2010. That's amazing. Wow. Have you gone to every single one of them?
0: I have. There was one that I only could stay for like an hour because of a girlfriend's commitment that I had a girlfriend at the time. So I only could stay for an hour for that one, but I was there.
3: Do you all have a club of people who've been to everyone?
0: Um, Not an official club, but we definitely notice certain folks very regularly. And I've noticed people who collect every button. And sort of showcase their regularity, like showing off every button they've gotten. So there's an informal club out there for sure. Like the idea, maybe we should actually organize and have a happy hour.
3: Have you met anybody else who's been to everyone?
0: Yeah, some of the other team members have been to every other one. And I mean, socially, I think of two people who weren't snapping. They've been to every other one, but I gotta ask them.
3: So I wanna talk to you about strategy because, you know, Don is our chief strategist at Bike Talk. And Lindsay is a strategist too. And so we were thinking that maybe we could solve some things. Do like it. what do you do as a strategist?
0: With Ciclavia, I'm thinking about kind of our long-term existence. When we started the organization, it was much about kind of the, the event and making sure the event happened and hoping that this organization would last. So the first few years, are we going to do another one? Are we going to do another one? As momentum picked up and we started to build a nonprofit organization, started thinking about and seeing the impacts our work has. After doing 37 events around the city, certain routes, for example, the downtown LA route, that's route we've done the most. Every year at least, and for the first three years, the only route we did. So we've been there many, many times. And you can see on a lot of the streets that we've used down there, bike infrastructure be put in, parklets be built. Some lifestyle shifts happen in the street infrastructure. And I'm not saying, you know, it's a direct cause and effect exactly. But if you look at a lot of our routes where we've done historically, you've seen infrastructure start to get put in on those routes. Bike routes like down Central Avenue, bike routes, 7th Street, So I do believe that we've started to understand that event starts to shift people's perception about what they can do, where they can go, how they can get around, and helps decision makers think about bikes mean business, bikes mean this, bikes help the street be more lively. I'm not completely scared of it. I'm willing to have these conversations. And in some places, be really gung-ho about, I'm going to go after it. I'm going to get this stuff. So as a strategist, I've been thinking about that for a long time and the whole team has i just have the title but it's really an organizational perspective right i just kind of maybe help poke it a little bit but the idea that our event means something and how are we building other programming how are we building relationships how are we tying projects directly to our events how are we working with the department of transportation to demonstrate things so that people are able to walk out of our events really having new options in their mind about the way streets can be used and in some levels just trying to grow this concept of what open streets means for our region and help them push policy change through that, help them bring more resources. We only get to monthly events with money and with political will. And so in order to get there, that's all campaign work, low key. We have a lot of fun with our work. So it's not like your traditional campaign organization, but we do think about this in the long term. And we've been building this for a very long time now.
3: Yeah. What's your most ambitious goal
0: I think my most ambitious goal relates to thinking about turning more streets into permanent car-free streets Mm -hmm. in the long, long term, right? I think in the short term, that looks like more bike lanes and, and more park lifts, all these infrastructure things that add more life to the street that take car space away. But I think at some point, long term, I do think another 10 years, another 15 years down the line, we're actually having really deep conversations about, hey, why isn't Broadway a pedestrian street? Why isn't Parts of Seventh? These aren't concrete proposals, but I'm just saying deeper conversations are being had. And I think we've already seen some of those conversations trickling up and happening. I just think that you have to engage people in dialogue about this stuff for them to be willing to accept these changes in their neighborhood. And in order for us to get through the friction we feel by proposing radical new street ideas, the way we get through that friction is by slowly demonstrating the stuff over years and taking the time to work with residents in their neighborhoods around revisioning what their community looks like with them, for them, by them, and taking the time to do that. There's a great example right now in West Adams of some new bike lane infrastructure being put in that went through quite a few rounds of community engagement. The latest round, by uh, Yolanda, she does some great work in the neighborhood and she helped re-engage a community conversation around some bike lanes that had already been kind of promised, but felt some friction late in the game. And we're talking on so many projects where you'll have done a lot of community engagement, talk to folks. You know, I've gotten the city to go, okay, we'll put them in. And then as the conversation moves to the phase of like, okay, let's start painting the street, somebody somewhere gets mad. It's like, somebody talk to me about this. And so being willing to re-engage in those kind of dialogues and do the deep work to have those conversations is the only way we're going to get these kind of projects in. I was born in a city. I have no problem thinking about long game around the work. It's unfortunate. It kind of sucks, but I'm building a city for my kids and my grandkids too. I'm not just worried about my lifestyle. I'm worried about the lifestyle of the city in the long term. And sometimes it takes work. We didn't get here quickly. We got here mm-hmm. over many, many years of disinvestment, lack of community engagement, lack of care around sharing street space, decades. So to think that it was going to disappear in five years that I put my fingers on it, that's really arrogant.
3: So we have a couple opposites here, I think, in Lindsay and Don. I think Don tends to think things are hopeless. <laughs> Lindsay tends to be the hopeful one. What would you say about that, you guys? I
2: don't think I'm hopeless. I think I'm
3: just cynical. And Lindsay, are you still there?
4: Yeah. And I love everything you're saying. And I totally agree that it's a process in helping people understand it. And I just want to say that my first Ciclavia was really life-changing. And I brought my kids and it just changed my perspective on what's possible for our street. And I'd love to see more Ciclavia's.
0: Thanks. And yeah, we're working on it. And as we even think about, Ciclovias are one way of using open streets. I'm very much an advocate of, it's not just even Ciclovias, these big open streets. How are we doing more easily produced block parties, cheap and low-hanging fruit for community residents to close their street off for a day and get together? How do we make that permit process easier? How do we look at the liability issues that come with it? And how do we support communities and be able to deal with it? We have to make our spaces more accessible and usable by residents, not just producers with money, because everything will be done by Live Nation in a second and nobody will be able to afford it, <laughs> so.
4: It's such a great point because it's like dance parties. Our streets should be for us to gather and enjoy and they're scary instead.
3: I think Don was talking about coalition building with me. The word hopeless came up then. That's what <laughs> that's what is talking about, right, Don?
2: Yeah, I mean, you gotta build coalitions with people that you might not think share your interests but on one particular issue they'll share your interest and that's when things can get done in my opinion i'm not saying it's hopeless i said it was hopeless because i was kind of thinking through all the on a national scale how ingrained car culture is and everything is in our society
0: I hear you. I would say something too about the coalition thing, though. For me, it's like coalitions are deep. Coalitions are relationships of trust on some levels. I get the idea we get together on one issue, but I feel like that's almost just democracy. That's just like voting. We all agree on an issue, we all voted for it. Cool. We can get together as one moment. I feel like when you think about coalition building, you have to think a little bit deeper about relationships. It doesn't mean you have to agree on everything. I don't agree with any of my friends on everything, but I'm friends with them. I have a relationship with them that is about more than the moment. And I think that particularly with street space and neighborhoods, this is where people live. This is where their businesses are. They're there every day. So if you're not there in some way daily, even if you're not physically there, but you check in, you're aware and present. You kick resources to, and you also take advice from. You build a relationship with folks. You have to think about coalitions, but a little bit deeper, because the word can be used, but then it can feel too transactional. And it feels like, here one day, gone the next. I'm real sensitive about that kind of thing, because even with an event like ours, we make a real effort to make sure we're returning to communities regularly and trying to build that cadence so that people feel an open street presence, even if it's not like every month yet, but oh, they're gonna be here every October. Now we know, we can plan for that. We can build for that. We know when we're gonna see them again, that kind of thing.
2: Yeah, very cool.
3: Are you monitoring the Eagle Rock BRT situation, Tafara? and you watching how they're going about it?
0: No, I haven't been able to keep track of the details. I know the broad strokes when they've come up, but I actually can't recall my last update on it.
3: Well, we would've had one last week, but I forgot to hit record.
2: The BRT situation is interesting in terms of coalition building. I think that the group that's been pushing for the one-line option has been really working with businesses in the area. And I think it actually, the way that Metro presented those two options, I feel like all of their work has been a success because Metro has whittled it down to two options and You'd have to be crazy to pick the two lane option because of the removal of parking. So they're really trying to get that one lane happening. Can I tell you
4: guys something really cool though about the one lane thing that I heard from one of the Dutch guys that I interviewed? I did not understand this is that when you have four lanes two going in each direction, people start to stagger because they don't really want to go right next to the other car. It's scary. And so when you take a lane away and go to two lanes, you get almost the same amount of cars going through, which kind of takes away the whole argument against the two lane option is actually very close.
2: I never thought about that. You're also organizing traffic so that right turners get in the right lane, left turners get in the left lane and the middle lane is through. But if you have two lanes, you've got people trying to get through in the right lane and stopping in the left lane so it actually ends up making traffic smoother when you have one lane
0: i love this kind of stuff you know because i feel like this is the kind of stuff that you can't necessarily tell when you're sitting in your car driving down a street or walking down the street but when you get the nuance of how streets really work and the nature of traffic it really educates and highlights that sometimes we assume that things are going to be more inconvenient than they actually are and it can help really take some weight off of conversations about changes in neighborhoods this kind of science
2: once again it's one of those It's like you're saying, like science. And there's so much anti-science feeling going around in this country. And it's like we're looking at science. We're looking at the flow of traffic. We're looking at actual data and so forth. And people out there, like the opposition to this plan intuitively just think more lanes better and they don't really look at the science and those illustrations that metro made were really helpful for understanding that the traffic flow can actually be better i think people still stick their head in the sand about it but there's a bunch of people that have changed their minds about it
3: the videos you mean that they made
2: i think the videos the advocacy work that michael mcdonald and agent x and felicia and all those people have done has really, really helped change minds. They've done a great job.
3: So maybe Ciclavia should be involved in stuff like that. Is that totally outside of the jurisdiction of Ciclavia to drop into local bike lane and treat calming struggles?
0: Well, I mean, I feel like it's not exactly our place. I definitely think that conversations around community level change should be had by community members. And there are a lot of great organizations around the city who are doing this work, already been doing this work, starting to do this work on many levels. I'm a little bit more of an advocate. I like to play the role of supporting these kind of conversations, these kind of leaders, that kind of work. So I think there is a place for Ciclovia in relationship to these kinds of projects. If we were doing a Ciclovia in that region, it'd be a great opportunity to do outreach about the issue. It'd be a great opportunity to demonstrate what some of the street treatments might look like. And we are completely game for those kinds of collaborations and conversations. We do them now very actively. But do I feel like I personally need to put my finger and get involved in every community's bike lane project? No, not necessarily. But at the same time, I want community members and leaders to have those conversations and not feel like they're being pressured by folks who do not live in their neighborhood and don't have a stake in their neighborhood in the same way they do.
3: Lindsey, do you want to make a pitch? You have, don't you have like a pitch for something?
4: I'm working with some people and it's kind of a longer hitch, but what you said about the future of like car-free streets and of really tying complete streets to affordable housing, because we have to build, we have this huge deficit of affordable housing that we have to build something like 456,000 units of housing in the next eight years. And, you know, I think giving people the option to live without a car, I would live without a car in a second. So, but I was also going to ask, what could the city change so we could get more ciclovias like how do we get a weekly ciclovia
0: i feel like a weekly ciclovia Nestle bogota's weekly sunday right one of the ways they've made that happen is they have military help with disclosures and citizens put up cones and block off their streets the residents just put up cones and stuff Some of the ways that that would happen in other countries just won't work here. And the level of production necessary for us to do our cyclovia to make it safe. At some point, you can get the amount of money and the staff to do anything, right? So that's definitely a thing. But I just wonder if that's the most efficient use of that money, as opposed to thinking about all kinds of different open street kind of concepts and implementing them over weekly schedules. Maybe there's a regional large Ciclovia event every month. We already been talking about that. <laughs> but then in that month, across the city, there's pop-ups happening. And you know, How do we make sure this is one big thing in one part of the city? Equity means this kind of stuff comes everywhere. And maybe you can do a weekly Ciclovia in every neighborhood. And that gives you the kind of schedule where you can do it. But again, I just wonder about resources, but it's possible. I don't think that's our story, the trajectory I'm aiming at right now. I'm thinking more like monthly. I'm thinking more like how are we proliferating other kinds of open street elements and things like play streets, where you close a couple blocks. We have a concept we're working on called Cicla Minis, which are just like mile long open street events. So we can, because there's certain neighborhoods that we've done or we want to do that a six mile event, it goes through a lot of area that just isn't necessarily the best area to be doing an open street event in for a number of reasons, from safety to just quality, like, oh, are going by train yards here. That's not the interest. Um, So smaller events, changing the model a bit so that you have a broader toolbox that can get you to the monthly and the weekly kind of concepts.
4: I love all that. The play streets. It would be amazing if, as you said, that if communities could shut down their street, and I hear you about the resources. The question is, how do you do it so that it doesn't cost resources? Maybe there isn't an easy fix.
0: I think that's a good thought and question, but I just point out like they're doing in New York over the pandemic, they did an open streets kind of initiative and kind of brought it down to the neighborhood level and allowed more residents to sort of engage this in their community side on the side. But they started running into issues with insurance and liability, trying to decide is the city taking responsibility for liability on these? Are these community members are doing it? And if they do that, do they have the resources to do that? Equity means figuring out a plan that works for everybody. And I worry that when we jump onto some of these kind of concepts, we don't really think about how to make sure it works for everybody. And then we implement it. And of course, it only happens in certain neighborhoods. And that tends to be the neighborhoods that always get the stuff and be playing the same old problems again and again.
3: hmm do you ever think of the brand of Cyclovia, how it's going and how it... <laughs>
0: I think about the brand of my name. <laughs> so yeah, part of my strategist thing, I think about branding for a lot of stuff. For Cyclovia, of course, I, you know, I think we have a really solid visual kind of brand in terms of our logos and we have a great designer we work with for that. And yeah, we think about what our name means. And during the pandemic, we were really sensitive to ensuring that we were going to do anything during the pandemic. It felt safe and it felt accessible and it felt like maybe not be a Cyclovia, but it needs to be something Cyclovia like Cause that's our brand free accessible for everyone. And it looks to engage communities that aren't always engaged. Like that's part of our brand. So yeah. How do you think about that?
3: All right. Well, last questions, comments, Donna and Lindsay, cause I think we're going to segue here.
4: Here's my one thought is that I love what you're saying about communities coming together and having these conversations. And I wish there was a way to speed them up because I think they're so important so that we could see some of these changes faster. But as you say, people have to understand it. We got to bring everybody along.
0: And I think some of the ways you can kind of jury-rig it to speed it up a bit is to really engage with organic community groups and coalitions that are already working on these issues or similar issues and supporting their work and engaging in their work and introducing these kinds of ideas that might relate to some of this transportation stuff, but really support the work they're doing. You know, there's amazing work going on around street vending right now, and there's a real corollary between street vending and what happens in the street space. How are you making streets more accessible for people all the time? So, and there's a natural alliances there to be had and that'll speed up a little bit. So I think we can look for those ways to do that by being really organic
3: and intentional. And Don, you want to spin us in any other directions?
2: <laughs> I am just looking forward to Ciclovía on Sunday. It's going to be my first one in a couple of years, I guess now. No, it seems like time has melted into nothingness.
0: I feel you don't lose all your hope, bro. Like I took a bike ride <laughs> from our office in our district to my house in mid city last week. I mean, it'd been a minute since I've taken a personal ride that long without like no cars being on the street for work, right? And I took bike lanes the whole way. There was a breakup in K-Town, but I felt hopeful. It still felt a little, like I was being a little bit of a road warrior. Had to be in order to do it a little <laughs> bit. But there was a lot of demarcation lines, a lot of bike lanes, a lot of feeling and a lot of deference from some car drivers who know these streets already and no bikes are going to be there. So uh, I think we have a long ways to go. And I'm trying to say no, we don't, but
2: we've, like we've said, come a long way. We've, we've definitely also come, come a long way.
0: Also come a long way. We also come yeah. a long way. So and you have better city partners on this stuff than we've ever had before. And we just need other city leaders and we'll be good.
2: Yep. There we go. Tafari, thanks for coming on and giving us the rundown on Cyclavia this Sunday.
0: Yes, yeah, this Sunday, 10, 10, 9 a.m. to 4 p.m. downtown L.A. Go to the website, www.ciclavia.org. Check out the map. Check out the programming. It'll be fully fun. Cool. Thanks, folks. Thanks, Tafari.
2: Right, See you out there.
0: Yep.
4: Week I interviewed Brett Atencio Thomas from Metro. He's amazing. And he told us this thing 10 years ago, Portland and New York put in great infrastructure, right? And they quickly got to six to 8% mode share for bikes. And in the last 10 years, they have put in hundreds of miles of bike lanes, right? And the mode share hasn't budged. It's at six to 8%. Hmm. I was like, well, that's really interesting that both cities have the same mode share, right? Those numbers are kind of crazy. It's a big coincidence. I was like, what if it's not linear? What if it's not, you put in more bike lanes, you get more mode share. What if it's more binary that we all have different levels of stress and adrenaline that we can tolerate? Mine's obviously really low. (laughs) I think Dawn is much higher. And so I'm in New York. I'm biking. I've been using city bike. I got one in it with an e-boost. It was amazing. And then I had a few near misses and I was like, I couldn't get back on a bike. I was like, I don't want to die. And I say, this is my best friend in the whole world is a hurricane chaser. He's the world's number one hurricane chaser. He flies into hurricanes okay, <laughs> to like measure them and film them and stuff. So we're really different. So if this is true, if people fall into kind of like categories of fear tolerance, like they don't mind the adrenaline or they hate the adrenaline. It just tells us that if you maybe to get above that 8% mode share, safety just becomes the entire thing.
3: 100 percent It has to be 100% safety.
4: Like I never want to be stressed out for even a second.
3: To get beyond um, the 6 to 8% mode share that Portland, New York are stuck at, you have to make it 100% safe.
4: What do you think, Don?
2: Um I think it's the street grid cuz if you explore places like the Netherlands and so forth, there's street grids are tight and small and it's more about the convenience versus the safety in my opinion but i think on these car oriented street grids i think it has to be about safety but ultimately you're going to ride a bike if you know it's a 15 minute trip or less if you're like a normie person that doesn't do epic bike rides you're more likely to ride a bike with no bike infrastructure if you live in a tight street grid versus a car oriented street grade with a lot of bike lanes. Like there's a lot of bike lanes out here in the valley and there's even protected bike lanes, but the blocks are so huge. And the zoning puts housing a mile or two or more away from services, which combined with beating cars and the car oriented design, it's still a tough ask to get people to switch their mode share in places like the San Fernando Valley that were designed for cars versus places like Boston or Portland. Portland's a tight street
3: grid. It's a pre-auto era street grid. But Lindsay's talking about Portland and New York City and saying that they're stuck, right?
4: I feel like that's a corollary to my theory. (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) If it's a mile away, you're right. You're not going to do it as well.
2: Everything's a mile away. Here in the car-oriented Valley where the streets were designed in the 40s and 50s. They built these huge street grids and they separated the housing from businesses and jobs. And I'm living in this area right now and it's like I want to ride my bike. And if I have more than a couple tasks, more than a couple places to go, I end up driving because the round trip and the big streets nudge me in that direction because I'm going to do a five to 10 mile bike ride trying to hit three spots because everything's so spread out versus living in Portland. You can hit three spots within a five block radius because they mixed their business and housing more in those pre-auto oriented street designs. They really locked in that street grid. They filled in so much Between the 30s and 50s and 60s around the United States, I feel like there were all these suburbs that were built out as people were getting excited about single-family housing and that kind of stuff. It's difficult. It's going to be difficult to overcome the street grid, you know, no matter how you build
3: it. Yeah, that's a problem. But we are talking about New York and Portland. Do they have a different street grid from the Netherlands?
4: Yeah, I think that New York is a perfect place to bike. It's just the cars are going out of control and people are stressed and honking at you. But I think that it could work, but it's really dangerous. And the infrastructure isn't network. It just ends.
2: Yeah. And the interesting thing about New York, because it is a tight street grid, my gut instinct from riding there before and after the bike lanes, most of the crashes there are like hustle and bustle type crashes versus somebody's making a left turn and hitting a pedestrian in a crosswalk kind of thing versus out here in LA it's like a speed kind of issue where somebody's crossing a huge street and they just get plowed into by a speeding car
4: well thanks for having me guys and I can't wait to listen to the next interview
2: we're gonna have you next week with the 24 minute version right
4: all right I love it good
3: all right, Tony, so I want to introduce your interview.
2: Our guest right now is Charlie Thomas. He's an attorney with Hubert Thomas and Marcel, a law firm that is in Texas. And also, you are a bike law delegate for Texas and Louisiana, and you're representing the six cyclists who were hit in Waller County. And we just have been hearing about this case. Basically, a teenager, a 16-year-old was driving a big truck and rolling coal which means it's a diesel truck. And a lot of these guys will do what's called rolling coal, which is doing some kind of acceleration on the engine that spews black smoke into the air proudly. And a lot of people have been doing this around the country and they've been doing it to cyclists. And actually this happened to me in Los Angeles and I didn't know what was happening to me. And I kind of realized what happened, but it was definitely frustrating. And uh, you could barely breathe when you're going through this cloud. So that's what this kid apparently was doing to these cyclists in Waller County. And we're here to talk to Charlie Thomas about that. And I understand you can't say everything about the case because it's still under investigation, but you'll do what you can to tell us about this case. Charlie, welcome to the show.
1: Don, thanks for having me.
2: Yeah, so you are representing these cyclists. As far as I know, no one has died, right? But there was a collision. This teenager was harassing these cyclists and rolling coal and blowing black smoke at them. Tell us what you know and what's going on with this case.
1: Sure. So this happened on Saturday morning, September 25th of 2021. It was around 1130 in the morning. And there was a group of triathletes who were training They were single file. If you can picture just kind of a rural Texas highway, four lanes, no real median. And our pack of bicyclists were riding single file training for an upcoming Ironman distance triathlon in Texas. And they were riding as legally as they could to the right. They didn't even have to be single file. They were. And there was a teenage driver who came up in a black F-250 was rolling coal so hit the accelerator and emitting giant plumes of black thick smoke and ended up crashing into six of the people who were riding bikes and don so i think what makes this case interesting a few things first of all peter wilborn of bike law so peter founded bike law back in 1998 after his brother was killed while riding peter was an attorney and he changed the focus of his legal representation and his practice area to, I'm going to represent people and their families who have been hit. And I think that stemmed directly from his family not having adequate representation from their lawyer after his brother was killed. So Peter changes up the focus of his practice, starts bike law, and bike law has been representing people who have been hit or harassed or really used bike law as a resource wherever there's an intersection between the legal world and the biking world since the late 90s. So Peter and I are jointly representing all six of these riders. What I think is significant about this case, more so than any others, especially like, why are we hearing about this nationally right now? Why are so many people following it? There are a couple of reasons. Number one, I think if you've ridden a bike, especially in a rural area at some point, you've either been blown at by diesel smoke, or you've had friends who have, or you're at least aware of the concept. And so this happens. There have been articles on it. There's been some coverage of it. It's horrible. Even some district attorneys will define it as an assault because you're being touched in a way that you don't want to. I mean, even though it's air particles, it's big black smoke that you're now in a cloud of. And it's like the opposite of that being an assault would be it's completely not actionable and therefore people can get away with it. And I don't think that's a great policy. So rolling coal where somebody with a diesel engine who can just step on the accelerator envelop somebody in thick black smoke, that's been around for a little bit. Okay, we have that component in here, and then we have this driver running into six people. So I'm not aware of another case that's happened in the US where you have the rolling coal turning directly into running over six people. So all right, let's accept that for what it is. You have that, in a place that's just outside of Houston. Houston is the fourth largest metro area in the country. And for that reason, it's pretty tough to bike across if you're going out for a triathlon training ride. Mm -hmm. So to avoid a traffic light every few blocks and have put a foot down and wait, people will go to the outskirts of Houston where it's a lot more rural, where there are highway roads that you can just go on for a while and you don't have to stop. And so that's what Waller County, which is where this happened, is known for. Mm -hmm. And the problem is there just seems to be a lot of anti-bike sentiment with a lot of people who live and drive in Waller County. So this is not the first negative encounter we've seen. I say that like as an attorney representing people who have had an issue in Waller County, it just seems to be a place that's somewhat hostile to people riding bikes. So add that as kind of the third layer here after rolling coal and then striking six people while rolling coal, put that in a place that has a history of not being bike friendly. And then on top of that, at an additional level, which is this teenage driver runs into them. At least he doesn't leave the scene. I think he has to stay there. But the local police respond. It seems like there's this very apparent residents and locals versus non-local, biker mentality that shapes up. And then despite what's happened with all of this, people who are scattered on the side of the roadway after being hit, the local police don't arrest this teenager for what he did. They don't even write him a ticket. He just walks. And so that's the part that has everybody up in arms where it's like, look, we see bad things happen every day. We see injustices happen every day. But the whole reason that we're able to not just throw spears at each other is because there's gotta be some sort of functioning system that holds people accountable. That can be on the civil side, that can be on the criminal side. So we are leading a civil investigation right now into what happened. And part of what we're talking about today are the facts that I can disclose They're either publicly available or it's what I can share. And a lot of that, Don, is I'm just trying to keep misinformation from being spread around because we all know how easily that can happen. There's separately a criminal investigation that's being handled by the Waller County District Attorney's Office. And what they're doing is reviewing all the available information, getting statements from witnesses, looking at what charges might be appropriate. I will say that the Waller County District Attorney's Office is very different from the Waller police department. Waller's also a city, not just a county. Mm-hmm. But the Wallard police department, who are the initial responding law enforcement officers who went to the scene, didn't do as thorough of a job as I think anybody would have liked them to do, like talking with some of the victims even, and then just letting this teenage driver go without being arrested or even ticketed. So big distinction between Waller Police Department and the job they did versus the Waller County DA's office, which is now the one that, that are looking at what could happen at this point. So that's just kind of setting the stage for what's going on and why this case is significant. Mm.
2: This situation sounds very much like the conditions that we have here in Los Angeles. You kind of have this cultural divide, I guess, where the police don't view cyclists as people with rights to the road. They take the side of the drivers. It just feels like there's that bias there.
1: And Don, I'll say we'll see kind of different biases where we go, whether it's like in a city or more rural. And... I'm friends with several police officers. We know many police officers who are on bike and that's how they patrol. I know several other police officers who ride recreationally in their spare time, not on their job. And so this isn't a like the police are bad or the police are good. It just really varies kind of depending where you go in terms of encountering a bias. But there is certainly a bias that's alive and well, depending on where you're going and who the law enforcement officer is. We see it more in urban areas where I think it's almost this issue where let's say you're an officer, you're in your patrol car all day, every day, driving around, whatever's on your plate that day, you're accomplishing, but you're seeing the world and you're seeing the city that is your world. And what we find is there are a lot of people who might be on a bike who roll through a stop sign or a red light, or maybe they were never taught to ride with traffic. So they're riding against traffic. And we rarely see law enforcement stop them and say, hey, you're doing it wrong. Maybe that's unsafe. Maybe there's a safer way to do it. Here's what the law says. It's almost like they see that enough. It's not worth their time to to stop anybody and tell them maybe the right way to do it. But at the same time, when there is an incident that requires them to respond, it's a crash, it's something else, it's almost like there is this pent up resentment where it's like, oh, look, we see people on bikes doing this wrong often enough. We're not going to give that person the biff of the doubt. And statistically, I don't think the numbers justify that, especially when you look at texting rates. I mean, just even anecdotally, go drive around and look, and this is especially true in Louisiana, Texas, where there aren't hands-free laws, where people are just driving around on their phones. They're literally looking at their phones, not making much of an attempt to hide it. And while texting per se, or emailing or being on a social media site is illegal while you're driving. It is perfectly legal to be on your phone, looking at Waze, looking at Google Maps, looking at Apple Music, doing anything that doesn't involve social media or receiving, sending, or reading a written communication. So that could be an email. But that it's very difficult to say, Hey, what you're doing is illegal I have a hundred other excuses for no, no, actually I was just playing words with friends and there's no law against that. So there are so many dangerous driving actions that people are taking that you really can't just say, Oh, it's the biker's fault. We should mm-hmm. default to that. Or bikers are unsafe. It's like, well, hold on. Traffic can be unsafe. So really, I think just based on how many people drive versus the amount of people who ride bikes, It is often easier just to connect with and side with somebody who might be driving versus somebody who might be riding a bike. And yeah, that would apply to law enforcement as well.
2: Mm -hmm. I guess at this point, when it comes to this kid, he obviously was harassing these cyclists. The witnesses are saying that in the rolling coal. And there's a criminal side and there's a civil side. The insurance, the hospital bills, all that stuff has to get paid by his insurance company, right? And right. how does the insurance company treat this? Do they still cover this if it was an intentional act by this kid? And yeah, that's
1: a great question. And there are multiple parts of this where maybe there was an intent to co Maybe it was just being reckless. There are different levels mm-hmm. of fault, If you want to call it a fault spectrum. Mm-hmm. On one end, it's just, and this is rare, but I was doing everything that I could, and I was being as as safe as I could and as safe as somebody in my position could be, it's called Mm -hmm. the reasonable person standard and something still happened. That's a true accident. True accidents are super, super rare. Mm -hmm. And so we don't even like the term accident. We like the term crash or collision Mm -hmm. because an accident just by the word choice makes it sound like it was not avoidable. You couldn't prevent it. And and typically, that's not the way it is at all. Somebody could have been doing a better job looking Mm -hmm. through their windshield, uh, stopping at the intersection, whatever it is. And you would have seen the engineering,
2: you know, the engineering of the roads.
1: Exactly. I mean, just look at it comprehensively. And so, from being negligent, which is, hey, I sure didn't intend for any of this to happen, but I made a choice. I could have done it better. I chose to not look. In front of me as well as I could have, and something happened. So you can go from negligent to then reckless, which is, hey, I've kind of got this full disregard for the safety of others, and I'm still not intending for anything bad to happen. I don't want somebody to get hurt, but I could be doing it so much better. And I am just truly being careless and reckless. And then you go all the way over to intentional. Mm. So that's, you're actually intending for something bad to happen. And so insurance coverage will stop short most of the time of some sort of an intentional act, but it will typically cover through like recklessness or carelessness or beyond just negligence. And so we have not spoken with the teenage driver. If he was intending to do this, I would think he's got some very serious criminal issues coming up for him. Even if he didn't intend to do this, maybe acting the way he did, he still has some exposure. It's really up to the DA as to what they're going to do with that. But there are certainly parallel tracks of the criminal side of this going, and then on our side, the civil side going.
2: So if they find that he did it intentionally, then the insurance companies would then argue that they're not responsible, and then the liability goes to the kid's parents?
1: Yeah, it would go to his parents him or his parents, that law varies state by state. But if your insurance coverage is voided and you are then uninsured, that's typically not good for anybody, the exception of an insurance company. It takes a lot for an insurance company to truly void coverage and say, we're not going to provide coverage. Because inherently in a lot of cases like this, even if an initial act was intended, That doesn't mean he was intending to run over six people. So we're not thinking that's going to be too big of an issue. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, you're touching on a fundamental tenet of insurance law, which is, hey, insurance companies aren't going to go insure people for intentional actions. It's going to be more negligence, recklessness, that sort of level of fault.
2: Mm -hmm. Okay. So I guess it still feels like a huge injustice that the kid wasn't arrested or they at least didn't get a ticket. But then, I guess on the other side of it if if they do rule this as intentional, I guess what you're saying is the insurance company would still cover it unless it's an outrageous intentional act.
1: yeah, that's a fair way to put it, okay,
2: so the kid could face some kind of criminal repercussions, and the insurance companies would still cover this
1: right. you can think about it this way too. I know California has this problem, many states do mm-hmm. where If you hit somebody, let's say you hit somebody Mm -hmm. while you're driving a car and you hit somebody on a bike, let's say you're intoxicated. The laws of many states will say that you are better off fleeing the scene Mm -hmm. and getting charged with hit and run later on than staying at the scene and being charged with being intoxicated after hitting somebody Mm -hmm. and causing bodily injury to them. So the problem there is there's an incentive built into the law for you to leave the scene, and that's not good for anybody. So just by way of insurance coverage, let's say you hit somebody, you're drunk, you don't mean to hit them, but you do, and then you leave the scene. Well, leaving the scene is an intentional act, but the underlying uh, struck the person, typically not an intentional act. So there are oftentimes some sort of not intentional act that can be found in the chain of events that would allow you to hook insurance coverage for the victim.
2: Mm. Wow. It's funny that, I mean, we're kind of sidebying here, but I was actually hit and run by a humanly drunk driver who did that. And I ended up doing the entire investigation myself, because once I got out of the hospital and I called the cops to find out what was going on, because I got a plate, the cops were completely, I'm just going to say they were overwhelmed with other cases, but, They were just like, yeah, it's going to take us a couple of weeks to run the plates. The cop actually told me, like, you can try to find the driver yourself. And I did. I posted the plate on social media on our bike website. And someone happened to know somebody in the CHP. They ran the plates. We found the guy. I got footage of the car getting repaired, all that stuff. And it was still a huge pain in the ass. Like I had to really hound the city attorney. There was so much resistance at every level to go after this guy. And I learned so much about it and why these hit and ones are happening. It's exactly like you said, like there's a motivation just based on the law itself to leave the scene of the crash. So it's just fascinating.
1: Yeah. And I think, Don, some of it too is I feel like the viewpoint could be you're riding a bike on a roadway you have this coming. You're assuming the risk of getting hit by sharing a road with a bigger, heavier, more powerful vehicle. And that's certainly not what the law says, but it is kind of a sentiment that I feel like some people could hold.
2: Yeah, there is definitely a cultural something going on with cars being the American way, and you riding a bicycle is getting in the way of the American way or something like that. I don't know. I have two cars myself. I am a driver as well. So if you could see me driving my car, would you then have some more respect for me on my bike? Probably not, but.
1: (laughs) (laughs) But it's so easy to stereotype and generalize and say, well, you know, these bicyclists are jerks and they're not paying attention to the rules of the road, but they certainly want all the rights that come with it. And it's like, you know, are there bicyclists that don't do it right? Of course. Are there people driving cars that don't do it right? Yeah, absolutely. Who can do a lot more damage? And so when you actually start wading into the specifics of that argument and who's out there that can cause a lot of harm to another person, the argument goes away. But there is still that cultural stigma of either, why are you on a bike? Why aren't you driving a car? I can't relate with you. Are you human? Things like that. So I feel like we've made a lot of progress in the last 20 years with it. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, there's just a ways more to go. And my heart really goes out to and part of why we love doing what we do is there are so many people, I mean, we're huge advocates, but there are so many people who don't even call themselves bicyclists. Even though all they do is ride their bike around to work, school, to the grocery, but they're not putting lycra on, they're not putting tights on and going somewhere. So they don't think they're really a bicyclist. They don't have time if they're working a couple of jobs to make their way to some sort of bike advocacy meeting. But that's who bike lanes are designed for. That's who should be able to get around so that they can be productive members of society. And whether that's just a personal choice, I don't want to drive a motor vehicle, If it's a socioeconomic choice where it's, I really just don't have the budget to get in a car with insurance and fuel and anything else, and riding a bike just makes a lot more sense, it should be an option that people can use for transportation where you're just not constantly feeling threatened. Or if something happens to you, you're already on the losing end of the argument with law enforcement or the other driver or an insurance company or in a court. So, all of those reasons packaged up why. We love giving a voice to people who feel like they sometimes don't have one. And so when it comes to the Waller County case, we just want to see what happens with the criminal side of this. We are very confident that the DA's office there is going to do the right thing in their Mm -hmm. eyes as to ticketing or charging this teenage driver. And because it has the nationwide attention of a lot of cycling communities, Mm -hmm. We're looking at it as we want the right thing to happen just because that's going to send the message as to, hey, for somebody who does something like this, and let's just not beat around the bush, the investigation is dropped and fumbled at the actual scene. Here's the chance to make it right. Here's the chance to correct it and take some action and hold somebody accountable. Show us what happened and what the proper thing is after something like this happens so that everybody can be aware of it. And I don't think that means this kid needs to go to jail for the rest of his life, but it shouldn't be. He's not getting a ticket either. So we're interested to see what happens. But we are confident that the DA's office in Waller County is treating this very seriously and prioritizing it and that they will at some point do the right thing.
2: Right on. Well, we want to follow this case. We hope to have you back on. Stay in
1: touch. And we'll certainly keep you abreast as we can release more and as we know more thank you for having me. It's been lovely chatting with you and y'all just reach out in the future if you want some updates and I'll look forward to connecting then.
2: Great. Thank you so much for coming on Bike Talk. Thanks for tuning in to Bike Talk. Stay safe out there. I rise in the morning and the day Pull out
1: the bike and I'm on my way And transportation shows I care Every turn of the pedal cleans the air
3: I'm saving the planet, just like my friends Dale, Sean, Toby, and Janet. No greenhouse gas, a tiny up your ass. Thanks for listening to this episode of Bike Talk. If you want to hear more, go to kpfk.org, navigate to programs, and choose Bike Talk. On the Bike Talk page, click on the archives link to play or download shows posted in the last four months. Go to Biketalk.com and copy or click on the RSS link to subscribe. Our Twitter handle is BiketalkPFK. On Facebook, we are Bike Talk. You can become friends and join our group.